Howdy dream, cowboys. Welcome back to the HBO Boys podcast. We are your HBO boys. I'm James, and with me is Ryan. Hello. We're the HBO boys. Boys with the Z. Fought for that Z. We'll say that forever. Maybe people don't know or don't care, but HBO's next hit show of the summer, please God let it be a hit, is a remake of a 1960s kind of film noir, half-detective, half-legal drama show, Perry Mason. If I had to guess, I would say the sentiment will be not caring and most likely not watching, but I have to divorce myself from that because I saw the trailer, I like it, these old Perry Mason episodes give me like hope that something that was made in black and white perhaps isn't bad Uh, as a millennial i just assumed everything that was in black and white is awful and gross and this show is slowly but surely letting me know otherwise and uh, but i do i hope people watch perry mason this summer i think less people are going to watch perry mason than they watched Watchmen, and then way less are going to watch perry mason than watched game of thrones but again I'm divorcing myself because at this point we just gotta watch what we yeah we we already watch. hitched our wagon to HBO so uh, it, we're hitched if if we uh, if our show eats shit it's because our fate is linked with the the networks you're right it's not our fault at all it is HBO's fault we are Will Smith hitched and so we, yeah we blame them completely I like this. Before we get started, I just want to mention because nobody listens to the end of podcasts. No one will probably listen to the beginning of this one. But wow. we have. We have a Patreon uh, where if you subscribe for just a dollar a month, you get a two bonus episodes a month, as well as access to our patrons-only Discord chat where you can talk to Ryan and I, uh, and, and, and we'll say things that are timely, and we will shout you out at the end of each show. So consider that as you listen to us talk about a 70-year-old TV show. Your morale is low. You know, I think it was, I didn't like this episode of Perry Mason very much, to be honest. Oh. What? It was rated second best episode on Ranker.com. How could you not have liked it? I didn't like it. <laughs> First, I want to talk about the, the platform that we watched this on, the CBS All Access Ugh. streaming website, which we both signed up for the one week free. Had to. I had to set a reminder in my phone to cancel it in six days or it will charge me money. Just so that we could watch two more episodes of Perry Mason and talk about them on the podcast before the HBO show. No one is going to renew their CBS free trial. What would the point be? Only if I forgot about it. Which, you know, even with the reminder, I might. The interface itself is not so bad on the website. It's actually quite fast if you watch it on mobile. The free content, though, you just get destroyed with ads. Anything you watch. Yeah, it feels like early on Hulu. With 120 seconds every commercial break. But in either case, yeah, it was annoying. And then we get into the episode. They love alliteration. It seems like, you know, Friends, every Friends episode is the one with blank. There is a specific nomenclature when it comes to the titles. And this show is exactly like Friends. Except for the fact that they use alliteration only. And this is the... Case of the terrified typist. Terrified typist. Which bears such a little relation to what actually happens in the episode. Yeah, almost 0%. So, we should say this episode was not our first choice. We wanted to watch 
the episode where a very young Leonard Nimoy guest stars as as one of the suspects. And he that episode takes place in season six, which is the one season you can't watch on CBS All Access. So calling it All Access is kind of stretching the truth, if you ask me. CBS Partial Access. It's going to be 30 minutes of complaining about CBS All Access. Beam me up. This is episode 38. These seasons are enormous. Episode 38 of the first season. The episode begins in a high-rise office building, the same building where Perry Mason maintains his office. He takes the elevator up to his office, and then he gives the elevator man, I don't know if the, the elevator attendant, he's named Barney, he's like, Barney, take my watch and get it fixed at the shop, and... Barney's like, you got it, boss. And I'm thinking, like, no, I'm the elevator guy. That's not my job. Go fix it yourself. Very playful music in this scene. Music that usually doesn't accompany a show that has to do with murder. Yeah, they they like to play around with the tone of this show. Yeah, it's, it's it's a funny little atmosphere. Talk about a grisly murder, and then I go home and hit on my secretary. Tale as old as time. In the same office building... Two employees of the South African Diamond Company, which is the name of the company, very descriptive, they leave their office to go meet with the, like, the CEO of the company who's coming with a big sack of diamonds. As soon as they've left the building, a suspicious-looking woman comes out of one office door, enters into the office door of the South African Mining Company, and she starts, like, rifling through all of the file cabinets and desk drawers in the office. All these shots of her are very sped up. Like, they just reeled the film very quickly. It's And it's very obvious, but I guess they just, you know, couldn't do take two. And they were like, she's going too slow. Make her go light speed. The way that she's dressed is, you know, a 50s housewife imagining she's going undercover. She's got, like, a safari hat on and those... Those very distinct 1950s, like, waitress glasses where they're, like, pointed up at the ends. I don't know what they're called, and they're kind of hard to describe, but if you saw them, they're immediately, like, shorthand for, oh, this is the 50s. (laughs) Yeah, they look like sideways teardrops. Another man enters the office as she's going through it. This is actually the CEO, the director that was supposed to meet with the other two guys, Mr. Baxter. He just assumes that she's the secretary or whatever. Sexism. What, women can't be burglars? No. They can only be secretaries. Yeah, not in the 60s. So he begins asking her pointed questions to get her to slip up. Like, oh, how are the other employees? How's Mrs. Loomis's arthritis? Yeah. He's, uh, he, he's gonna, he's, it's a gotcha. He, he knows he's getting her. Also, by the way, guy's creepy as hell and a bad actor but he, he like at one point he puts his hands on his hips and he's like, ha ha, you've been caught in your web of lies. Yeah, she plays it like a fucking idiot. There was such an easy way out of this. Oh, I just started last week. I haven't met Mrs. Loomis yet. Oh, then on your way, madam. But of course, you know, she goofs up and he's like, well, I'm going to call the police. And so she she slaps him with a briefcase which i guess she got him full of bricks right in the sweet spot because he totally just hits the ground face down but he gets back up and he's about to call the cops she runs not down the stairwell but back into the office door she came from and he only checks the stairwell door doesn't bother to look one foot to his left to check the other door he's old and feeble james you can't hold it against him 
He runs to the elevator. He's like, elevator attendant, call the police again. The attendant's like, I I gotta get this watch fixed. Yeah, I have a hundred other things to do. And then somebody also has to man the elevator. Somebody up comes up. They're like, Barney, take this laundry up to the basement floor and then have it done for me by noon. This is inappropriate. So the runaway burglar woman uh, stumbles her way into Perry Mason's office as she's trying to escape. Where Della immediately assumes that she must be a temp worker sent over to help her with the workload, which has been heavy lately. Cut to her. See, this is funny. In the 60s, you had a document. And if you wanted a copy of the document, you had to sit there and type it out a second time. Because there's no copy machine. So that's what she's doing. And Della is complimenting her. Oh, you're doing such a good job. Nice work. Della walks in, gives it to Perry Mason, saying, well, she let a dangling participle get by. And then Perry Mason says, well, then undangle it, which is A-plus writing. Paul walks in, sees Della. Hey, beautiful, right away with the... Hey, hey, <laughs> woman, I'm a man. Hey, sweet cheeks. He's holding a martini. <laughs> Paul tells them that a robbery has just occurred somewhere else in the building. And he begins to describe the culprit... And Della immediately realizes the description, you know, matches the temp to a T. And when they go out to check, she's already gone. Yeah. Della Sweet Cheeks is a great detective. She remembers things. Puts two and two together. Gets four. Perry Mason has shoulders that can't be real. I refuse to believe his shoulders are that large. Perry, I know, just sticking his nose in other people's business, decides to go see what's going on at the Diamond Company. And as he's arriving... There's a very posh-looking woman, not the same woman. This woman is a brunette, leaving the office at the same time. God, remember her for later, as Perry won't for uh, an act. Perry meets Walter Loomis, the manager of this office, and he's upset about the robbery, but he's also got a bigger problem that the director, Mr. Baxter, the one who got smashed with the suitcase, is now totally gone. He was supposed to meet them with a bunch of diamonds, And after the whole burglar thing, he can't be found anymore. Oh my god. What has happened to the old man who can't act? At the pier, a man in a suit dumps Mr. Baxter's body into the water. (laughs) That bald son of a bitch just got flipped into the goddamn river in front of a seaman. It's later established that this is supposed to be at night, but in this shot, it's broad daylight, so that's tough to tell when you're in black and white. Also, by the way, obviously a stuntman with a bald cap on, better actor as is dead than the old man who's also also dead. So he's got him tied to a cement block and pushes him into the water, like, not very far from uh, an old fisherman witness who just watched, casually watching the entire thing happen. Right. Like, if this was Tony Soprano doing it, he would have shot the fisherman because he would have, like, you know, looked up. So the fisherman does what anybody would do. He immediately calls the police and he meets with Lieutenant Bragg, who we know from the pilot. You mean Old Man Cool Hat? Who is Sans Hat, which is, uh, uh, which just doesn't make sense, but it is Old Man Cool Hat. I could recognize him anywhere. They recover the body. Bragg takes the fisherman, whose name is Gilly. Hilarious. Sick shorthand. And uh, he takes him to point out the suspects that they've rounded up who were in the vicinity at the time. And he points out a businessman looking type, Mr. Dwayne Jefferson, who was the other employee from the Diamond Office at the beginning of the episode. 
The next day, Mr. Loomis goes to visit Perry Mason. He wants him to represent Mr. Jefferson in this murder case. And he makes it clear that he thinks, you know, this is all pretty flimsy. They're just going on the word of one drunk old fisherman. <laughs> yeah, that it happened five inches from. <laughs> yeah, it's basically like the, the the corpse's head knocked into the fisherman's boat as he was falling in the water. <laughs> he knows nothing. He was barely there. Perry meets with Jefferson in lockup. This scene is mostly about Jefferson and Perry smoking bogues. Yeah, you're just allowed to smoke in the jail in the 60s. Pretty cool. <laughs> Jefferson gives him his alibi, which is that he was at a dinner engagement with a lady friend, which went on until about midnight. But he doesn't want to reveal who he was with, because it would be a scandal. And Mr. Jefferson's attitude is extremely cavalier. He's like, what, I'm going to beat this rap? It's just some stupid, opie fisherman. Like, I'm going to get away with this. Don't worry. I'm totally innocent. Right. I'm a gentleman, and that being a gentleman is as important as me, you know, beating this murder charge. Also, this guy who's playing Dwayne Jefferson, not a great actor either. Paul, in the next scene, says the name of the episode terrified typist like uh what is that show or movie no you're thinking of family guy yeah oh, well, fuck and it. peter always points and goes <laughs> <laughs> back at the office perry tells della that he thinks that this mystery woman is possibly the burglar who oh, was uh, rifling through i mean good enough guess clearly there's something going on it all happened in the same day yeah but it can't be true women can only be secretaries Paul also arrives saying that he has somehow, and I don't know exactly when this was established, with, with the woman's hat or something, found the identity of the burglar. Like, I don't know okay. what he did. He took the hat to the hat shop and was like, who bought this hat, maybe? And the hat they person was like, it. this lady. Anyway, it is the wife of the prominent Senator Ralph Taylor. They still, at this point, they don't give her name. They call her Mrs. Ralph Taylor. Great. Not sexist at all. She's obviously probably a secretary. Wait, actually, wasn't she? Yeah, she was at some point. Patricia Taylor, that's right. Yeah. So they decide to go and, like, ambush her in her own backyard, which, uh, again, you guys don't have any authority to be doing this. You're just two guys. (laughs) She's like, this is private property. And they're like, good point. We're sitting down. So they, they ask to hear her story, and she gives them quite a yarn. She says that while she was first engaged... To the now Senator Taylor, she was working as a secretary in a military office where she began a romantic blind correspondence with a charming soldier, Captain Dwayne Jefferson, the murder suspect. Though they never actually met, they sent each other love letters and, and importantly, cartoons. They say the word Why? cartoons about a hundred times in this episode. Yeah, right. So, Why? like, what what kind of cart? Like, she drawed stick figures fucking? I, I'd, like... That's exactly. It's really important to her to get these back. (laughs) They were had to be graphic cartoons. For a while, she was infatuated with Jefferson, and she sent him plenty of love letters and and in New Yorker cartoons that she drew herself. Yeah, it was just like early copies of Dilbert. But then eventually, she realized that she was actually in love with her fiance, Senator Taylor. Probably as soon as he was elected senator, she's like, oh, actually, uh, I'm fine with this guy. (laughs) Now you're the one who's sexist. So she asks Mr. Jefferson to return the love letters that she sent to him so it wouldn't cause a scandal. Like, oh, please send these love letters back. 
that I wrote to you while I was engaged. What did you, did you date the letters? Because otherwise you could just say that it was before you were engaged. Yeah, she dated the letters. She wrote them in blood. I don't know. It's, she went too far. Yeah, she keeps, she keeps writing about things that happened that day. She's like, yeah, the Dodgers went 16-0 and against the Yankees today. <laughs> and here is the newspaper from this morning as well. At first, he said that he would give them back when they met in person, but then when they met in person, he blackmailed her for money, which she did not have, which is why she broke into the diamond office to steal the love letters, which for some reason the dude was keeping in his diamond company office. I add so much to this podcast. (laughs) Perry sends Paul to Jefferson's office to get a fresh pair of clothes, and when he gets there, he finds Mrs. Taylor sneaking around, and there is, there is like a big, like, brass... When they find her, (laughs) like it was really cheesy. But also, what they arrived at the same time. So was she just like driving behind them on the highway? Yeah, I I don't know. This felt like a house episode where they were just like, let's go do things that are probably illegal or unconstitutional, but doesn't matter. We're big, we're big, sexy, brawny men. We can do whatever we want. That's exactly like a house episode. So Paul, I don't know what, puts her under citizen's arrest and drags her back to Perry's office. (laughs) Yeah, just, uh, he doesn't sucker punch her, but I wish he did. And they show her two pictures, which they have found. One of her with Mr. Jefferson taken at a fancy restaurant, which she confirms was them the night of the murder. And then a second picture of him with another mystery woman who uh, Patricia Taylor does not know, but seems to be the same day. No, this is really stupid. Yeah. They're comparing the two pictures and he's like, well, how can we know it's the same day? Well, maybe those two people in the background are the same people. And then it takes until the end of the episode for Paul to be like, yeah, I found out they are the same people. Found out how? Well, you looked at the picture extra hard, harder than you had before. Like (laughs) Perry tells him to go blow the pictures up, make them bigger. And I, I just, (laughs) I pictured Paul sitting there just enhanced. Enhance. <laughs> Enhance. Uh, Perry basically accuses uh, Mrs. Taylor of having an affair and trying to cover it up, and she denies that. She insists that she really doesn't want to help Mr. Jefferson in any way, establish an alibi, but Perry convinces her to tell the truth, and so she contacts the DA to give her side of the story before the trial begins. And then we go to the trial, which yeah, is like well, half this the is, episode. This is only half the episode, and now half the episode's the trial, basically. Yep, it's Perry versus Burger, round 38. And I gotta say, the trial scenes really save this episode, because everything pre-trial was, like, pretty bad, and all the all the minor, like, characters, all the non-main characters are not really bringing their A-game performance-wise. No, but Burger is always a force to be reckoned with. At the start of the trial, the prosecutor lays out the case against Mr. Jefferson, In the murder of Mr. Baxter, basically the motive was to steal the diamonds, and now they are seeking the death penalty. If y'all don't know, Berger is the prosecutor. That's his actual name. I didn't know that. Yeah, that's his name, and he's going to prove that diabolical cunning occurred, I think. I don't know. He said the words diabolical cunning, and I was like, well, I'm writing that down. First, they call the stupid drunk fisherman Gilly up to the stand. The seaman. He recovered Mr. Baxter's hat at the scene and had his name written inside of it. All hats have names in them. And he points to Mr. Jefferson. He's like, and that's the culprit. 
That's and the one. That's Perry, the one who hit me with his that person's body. Perry's cross examination is so weak. He's like, "So did you read the hat right then and there?" No, I took it home and read it. Well, why didn't you? It was a little bit dark. Oh, okay. So it was so dark that you couldn't read tiny writing on a hat. Then how could you be so sure you saw a man five feet from you? <laughs> right. He's close. Just trying to prove that the old seaman needs glasses. Which and it really sure. this, this just goes nowhere. You guys like no? I, I saw him and I see him again. There he is. <laughs> okay, no more questions. <laughs> Perry's like, Jesus. Sorry, not going well. <laughs> Next, Lieutenant Bragg takes the stand and testifies about the cement block, which was used to weigh down the corpse. A part of the block was broken off and found inside Mr. Jefferson's car. Not oh looking God. good. Perry has no, no further questions. Perry has nothing yeah, to ask. Yeah, that is damning. <laughs> Old man, cool hat, sans hat, giving the damning evidence against Perry, a person who wins... 99.9 if not 100% of cases it looks like he's sweating over there I will say the court proceedings in this show are purposely very linguistically accurate that is a, a large part of the show why writing the show was so difficult but I will say now that Law and & Order and NCIS and every other show CSI I, I don't know if that's any of those shows now that those exist and I'm going back when a court proceeding is accurate, it is way less entertaining, right? Like, there should just be more yelling, right? That's, in my experience, there's yelling. Right. And, and you know, the, the mafioso should run over and throw a vat of acid into Harvey Dent's face. That would really shake up the trial right there. That's true. The, not even one person in this scene had two faces. Next, the prosecution calls a surprise witness, Joseph Henrik. He is the guy who normally lives in the apartment that was rented out to Mr. Baxter. He testifies that he saw Mr. Jefferson and Mr. Baxter go into the apartment. He heard a loud argument. He heard Mr. Baxter say, you'll never get away with it. And then a Ooh. deathly groan. <laughs> that is a... Perry's just tough. like pulling on his collar. Yeesh. Yeesh. <laughs> Perry begins to cross-examine Mr. Henrik. Perry asks if it's possible that people to go in and out of the building without him seeing. And Henrik's like, sure, yeah, why not? It's not like I was standing, staring at the door the whole time. Right. He went up to the apartment above the garage to discuss the ongoings with his wife, who told him not to interfere. Basically, <laughs> J Joseph intimating that all women are cowards. No, it's that his wife browbeat him. He's like... I want to go check. Uh, maybe there's a murder downstairs. He was the German, but I'm better at doing Italian accents. He is, I honestly think <laughs> his name was Joseph Henry, and you're just being a racist. And his wife was like, instead of investigating murders, why don't you go get a job, Henrik? Jesus. <laughs> I don't know what to, I don't know what you're being anymore, or if it's offensive, but I like your style. No, you can always do an Italian accent. It's never racist. The woman you just did was Italian? I, I gotta play that back as a replay. <laughs> I was gonna try to gloss over that. <laughs> no. Perry asks the judge to dismiss the case on a lack of evidence, and the judge denies him, obviously. He's like, He's like no, what lack of you. evidence? We have an eyewitness, and the, the brick was found in his car. <laughs> yeah. Perry's like, I mean, he's not guilty, right? And the judge is like, I mean, he kind of feels like he's guilty. And then Perry's like, ah, oh, fuck, fine. Okay, let's keep going. 
Perry calls the defendant, Mr. Jefferson, to the stand. He asks him about his nationality. Turns out Mr. Jefferson is a citizen of South Africa. We should say in this 60s episode of Perry Mason, South Africans just more or less sound like Brits. But all the South Africans that I have ever met have very goofy accents. What's going on, bro? I'm from South Africa. That was actually, you don't know, but that was a good impression. (laughs) You're losing your voice. (laughs) Too many impressions. I've never met a South African, so I'm going to have to take your South African goofy voice word for it. Jefferson gives his shitty alibi that he was out to dinner all night until midnight. And the restaurant is over an hour away from the crime scene and the crime happened at 10. So how could he possibly have done it? The next section is kind of dramatic. So Perry asks him to name the woman he was with, and he refuses because that woman is married and he does not want to impugn on her dignity. Perry asks him if he knows, if, if he knows Patricia Taylor, at which point, right. objection! You can't yeah. just stand up there and rattle off names of women. And the, the judge is like, that's true. And the defendant's like, yeah, I agree. <laughs> yeah, the defendant agreed against his lawyer, and the jury was like, wait, you just said the name... Is that the lady you were talking about? And Perry Mason's like, haha, I gotcha. I just said her name out loud so everyone can hear it. I'm very smart. Perry reminds him that he is under oath and asks him directly if he was with Patricia that night. And Jefferson answers only that he was with a woman. He basically should have just been like, I won't give Patricia up. Fuck. <laughs> Whoops. The DA, I like this move. The DA then starts his cross-examination. And, and basically all he does is... Comes up, he accuses Jefferson of white knighting in order to get sympathy, yeah. and calls then also Galahad to his face, and then he calls him a dick for not just straight out saying it wasn't Patricia. He's like, okay, so you're not going to say it is her, but you're going to let it hang in the air. That's how nice of a guy you are. Yeah, prosecutor burgers and fries, very much on the train of you're no gentleman, you bitch. Perry calls his surprise witness, and it's Patricia. Oh my god. She takes the stand, and the uh, prosecutor is outraged and tries to object, but the judge allows it. (laughs) Uh. Perry has Patricia explain about the affair and the letters, and he also has her confessing that she met him that night at the restaurant. But, bombshell, she says she only was there for 15 minutes, and then she left, and that she hates Mr. Jefferson. These letters were basically what sexting was prior to that existing and also i have to point out patricia is wearing a frisbee as a hat like (laughs) night like a disc it's a her her brain called and it's because it's being abducted by this hat and not to be a 60s sexist guy but patricia again kind of a dime Ooh, you're calling her a dime piece what about the hat though that takes a point off yeah take the hat off No, no. The hat has to stay on because she wore it in the first place and she must be held accountable. The DA begins his cross-examination and he whips out the letters that he has uh, as part of his evidence. And he reads one of them, one of the letters that Mr. Jefferson sent Patricia. He begins to read one of them. And in them, Mr. Jefferson says that he is willing to return the love letters, but he would like to do it in person. Patricia claims that that's why they met up and that's when he attempted to blackmail her. A felony. The prosecutor also points out that since they only met for 15 minutes, that means Mr. Jefferson's alibi is garbage. Perry asks one more question. Is it possible that Mr. Jefferson met with a second woman after her? And Patricia's like, anything's possible. I don't know. 
Perry just like really eating shit. This truck. He's like, oh fuck, I, I don't, I don't know what this feeling is. Is this what losing feels like? That night, Perry, Paul, and Della are having a meeting about the case in his office. The jury is still in deliberation. Paul says that he cannot identify the woman in the second photo of the restaurant. Della answers the phone, and they hear that the jury has just made their decision. Back in the courtroom, the jury comes back with a guilty verdict, and the judge recommends the sentence of death. And there's like a long extended silence and multiple shots of all the people in the courtroom. And I didn't understand why all a whole lot. But what the what it, they were really doing in that moment was Perry Mason doesn't lose ever. In fact, this episode is famous out of Perry Mason's entire filmography because it's one of the only times where he loses. And the, the silence was everyone just being like, it's not possible. Right. Perry Perry, Perry stands up. He's like, look for my name in the obituaries. Yeah. <laughs> Burger and Fries get some pictures taken of him. He's never won against yeah. Perry Mason <laughs> this in his, is his whole life. This is his first time he's ever convicted a criminal. Perry announces that he's going to appeal this to a higher court, obviously. Of course if it's, if it's a death sentence case, you would. Yeah. Back in the offices, our three heroes are poring over the picture, but they basically come up with nothing. And so... Della, just like shooting in the dark, is like, maybe she's Mrs. Loomis's wife, because he's the only other character in this. <laughs> and so they go. They're like, sure, why not? <laughs> Let's go sure, to Loomis's house. <laughs> Della's got a point. Let's go talk to Loomy boy. So now we get to the ending of this, and it all kind of happens within like 10 minutes. It's shocking how much happens in the last 10 to 5 minutes. Perry tells Mr. Loomis that he thinks his request for an appeal is going to be denied and that Mr. Jefferson is going to die if he doesn't find that second woman that Mr. Jefferson was with. We as the audience can immediately tell that Mr. Loomis's wife, who is the worst actor in the episode, just terrible. Mm-mm, Baxter worse, but, but, but I, she is bad, but Baxter was worse. It's clear that she's the woman from the second photograph, and so... She makes a big confession to both Perry and her husband. She says, like, yes, I was with him. We've been having an affair, but I'll testify in order to save him. So Perry uh, and Paul are like, great, and they go out. Perfect. Perfect. The minute then, the door closes. <laughs> yeah. Like, we, we get a scene that doesn't make like narrative sense a whole lot. Most of the time you don't see a scene in this show that doesn't have Perry Mason or like one of the main characters there to be watching it. But here you just like see the all the whole evil plan is just like said out loud. Right. Immediately, Mr. Loomis is like, why would you do that? If you take the stand, we could have got away with this scot-free. Also, it's all his fault since the blackmail and the murder was his idea to begin with. And, you know, Perry and Paul just walk back in. They're like, yeah, I left my hat in here, but we were right outside the door, so I heard everything. <laughs> gotcha. No, that didn't happen. But Aww. next, and again, this is supposed to be a night scene, but the ambient lighting is so bright, you could you could be playing baseball. There are no dimmers in the 60s. Mr. Loomis goes to a trailer in the woods where he and another man have a third man bound up. And I don't know why he came, he came here to taunt him. He's like, guess what? We're going to Mexico now, bitch. <laughs> yeah. So get so ready, but that. not right now. Uh, but it turns out Perry and Paul tailed them here and they beat up the, the two bad guys and they rescue the bound up man. Yeah. Paul throws one of the guys and then just like expertly fucks a dude up, like judo chops him. Yeah. Paul's pretty badass. Yeah. At the appeals hearing, 
Perry calls to the stand the real Dwayne Jefferson. What? <laughs> who is actually the man who was bound up in the trailer. This is very confusing. I'll try to explain it. The it's defendant confusing. is actually a con man named James Kincaid, who Great was name. hired by Mr. Loomis to yeah. pretend to be Mr. Jefferson in yeah. order to con Mr. Baxter out of the diamonds because Mr. Baxter had never actually met Mr. Jefferson. And the real Mr. Jefferson would not participate in the con, so Loomis got rid of him and got this con man in order to either to con him out of the diamonds, and when that failed, Kincaid went rogue and murdered him. Jesus. So, also, what happened with Patricia and the blackmail was totally, basically unrelated. She was in contact with the real Mr. Jefferson, and she made plans to meet the real him in the restaurant where we can assume the real Mr. Jefferson, if he's the nice guy from the letters, would have returned them. But since Kincaid, you know, he's just running a thousand cons at once, he decides to blackmail her. He's like, well, I'm already going to get paid from this diamond thing, but can I get a little money out of this random girl too, just to implicate myself uh, in a second crime? So Perry doesn't lose. Well, he did lose. He he, he wins by losing. <laughs> right. So he yeah, he does. He gets the real Mr. Jefferson off, or at least protects his good name. Nice. But ostensibly, the man that he was hired to defend is going to go to the gas chamber, I guess. Oh, wow. That's how they executed people back then. Don't blame me. I blame you. For them using the gas chamber, I blame you. Also, by the way, he did lose. He did not save James Kincaid. But to be fair, that's because James Kincaid did that shit. And then secondarily to that, when Burgers and Fries finds out that he lost, he basically shouts at the judge like, This is Perry grandstanding like a dick, like he always does, and I'm mad about it. I like the idea that Perry sends Loomis and Kincaid both to jail, but then he still cashes Loomis's $5,000 retainer. He oh, <laughs> yeah. that money. <laughs> well, Perry needs that money for his gigantic suits with his gigantic shoulders. That right, I... His shoulder pad addiction. Yeah, they. I refuse to believe those shoulders are real. So, yeah, the case is over. Back at the office, Perry, Paul, and Dell are discussing the case. And I guess, oh, I don't know, but it seems like maybe every episode ends this way. They get a letter from Senator Taylor with a check in it made out to Perry. And this is thanking them for not bringing up the love letters and cartoons in court, even though the prosecutor did. Yeah, but <laughs> so. it doesn't make sense to the audience, apparently, unless Perry gets paid at the end. And, you know, at the end, Dell is like, so why, you know, why wouldn't he just immediately skip town and... Perry's like, uh, he probably thought he would, you know, just beat the rap since there wasn't a lot of evidence against him except, you know, the cinder block piece that he didn't get out of his fucking trunk. And then he rolled the body straight into the water right in front of some dude, but he still thought, yeah, I'll be fine. Turns out he's a dink, that's why. They make some joke at Paul's expense, I forget. You know, they're basically like, you're my slave, Paul. You ought to do what I say. Ha 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 Jesus Christ. No, it was to, well, it was to intimate that Della did the work on this one and really figured it out. And Perry's like, would you like to take some notes on it, Paul? Oh, yeah. He's like, yeah, you, you secretary woman, go do some women's work. <laughs> wow. Yeah. It's the, the 60s, 60s, people, yeah. Good stuff. So yeah, not as good as the pilot, but I mean, the ending at least, you know, I didn't see it coming. Well, this, to be honest, that's something that annoys me about both this show and the Sherlock Holmes novels, 
And uh, if anybody has seen its brief run on Adult Swim, the, the anime case closed, is that they don't give you the information that you would need to solve the mystery on your own because they're withholding crucial pieces of information, which I guess is fitting for, like, a courtroom drama, but not so much a murder mystery. I think back on the recent movie Knives Out, where they really did, if you had a, you know, a keen eye for details, you could figure out the mystery at the end. But th- with this show, you really can't, because what you would need to understand what happened doesn't come out until the very ending. Which I don't like. I like going back to the beginning or watching for a second time, knowing what I know at the end and having it be slightly different because of that knowledge. And this show does not do that, but it's fine. I'm not holding that specifically against it. Um, There are other things to hold against the show rather than that. And the recurring cast all do a great job. It's, it's, It's these, you know one episode supporting actors who just like really fucked this episode up mrs loomis's wife the accent she was trying to do and just her performance is like i won't let him take the stand god that was spot on you're goddamn luminary so we have got one episode more to do before the debut of the hbo show reminder everyone <laughs> when you said that i was like god He's torturing me. <laughs> Reminder for one that there's a point to this. They're adapting this into oh. an HBO show, right? Remember? Right, 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 right. <laughs> so this was supposedly the second best episode, at least on Ranker. Next week Christ. we will be doing the first. The case of the moth-eaten meatball or something. I forget what it was. Moth-eaten meatball? <laughs> no, that's not it. I was just It's the moth-eating something, so I was just alliterating. Oh, I don't think moths like meatballs, so that's stupid. So if you're just listening, that means a lot to us. If you want to go the extra mile, you could follow us on relevant social media or subscribe to us on all the different podcast apps. On Twitter, he's at Westworld Ryan, and I'm at James Watches Men. Best name ever. If you really want to go the extra mile, it would be really helpful if you could just spread the show to your friends and family by word of mouth. Or... If you want to achieve the pinnacle of extra mile going, you could subscribe to us on Patreon, where you get two bonus episodes, a a constantly growing backlog of patrons-only content, and access to our patron-only chat, and we'll shout you out at the end of our show. Which is what I'm about to do right now. Atheism is Unstoppable, Bacaman, Brent Ginn, Carol Andreas, Chris Wood, Cliff Wilding, Craig, Day 11 Westworld, Hardboiled Greg, Hello underscore Yo, James Christopher, James Watch My Dong. I am. Nice. John Juris, Lee, Major Woody, and Nicole. Thank you very much for the monies to the Patreon. I think there are like three or four bonus episodes this month, actually. A lot of content this month. Only for a dollar? Wow. What a, a deal. That'll get you, you know, that'll get you a can of Coke if you go to an off-highway gas station. On the highway, it'll probably be a little more expensive. I mean, that point is true. So. (laughs) I'm James. (laughs) Oh, no. No, no. Come on. You're right. I should have been funnier there. You you cut me off. You're like, well, this episode's done. Put it in the trash can. (laughs) <laughs> uh no 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 i got it i got it off off highway gas station 
Coke from a hog. Yeah, and then for another $3, you can get yourself some gas station sushi. <laughs> Good one, Ryan. I'm Ryan. This is the and this podcast. is the HBO Boys podcast. Fuck. <laughs> <laughs>